Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program this morning, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We got some good news this morning. Uh, Sharon, out of the gate, it looks like the efforts to bend the curve in Georgia actually are working. Uh, and there is data out there that suggests only 10 to 15 percent of people's additional people's behavior has changed. Uh, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, that's enough. The 10 to 15% behavior, there's changed. A lot of people are already staying home. A lot of people are already doing what they were supposed to be doing. And it is a good thing that people are doing it. It is a good thing. People are staying home. It has moved us now from uh, approximately April 24th or April 23rd to April 20th in terms of uh, getting over the hump and, and flattening the curb. And and seeing the deaths in the state decline, that that is a good thing. We should all uh, be appreciative of everyone doing what they're doing, even as some refuse to do what they're doing or refuse to do what they should be doing. There are there's a, a church down in Statesboro today where several of the members have gotten arrested. They they tried to gather, and the governor has been telling churches, "You can meet, you can meet." The governor does not want to shut down churches, but he's been insisting that if you do meet, what you have to do is keep six feet apart. You must reduce the curve if you can. And so in Georgia, we now have 294 deaths. That's 3.89% of uh, the people who have gotten infected have died. Let me give you the rundown for the state of Georgia right now. 7,558 total cases, 1,393 hospitalizations, 294 deaths. 1,053 of the 7,558 cases are in Fulton County. That's Atlanta. There have been 32 deaths there. In Doherty County, 722 cases and 44 deaths. 600 in DeKalb County, 11 deaths. 517 in Cobb County, 26 deaths, 455 in Gwinnett County with 10 deaths, 254 in Clayton County with 9 deaths, 182 in Bartow County with 11 deaths, 181 in Henry County with 3 deaths, 163 in Carrollton or in Carroll County with 4 deaths, 148 in Lee County with 13 deaths. The only other county with a double-digit death total is in Mitchell County, and that is 59 cases and 10 deaths, uh, which is, uh, that's, that's, and uh, that's a disproportionately high number. Now, for those of you who don't know where Mitchell County is, that's Camilla, Georgia, uh, down near Moultrie, south of Albany, and that explains it as well, that hospital system overwhelmed, uh, and the Mitchell County, the, the virus spreading, you remember it got out in Darty County at a funeral, a preacher preached a funeral. He was infected and didn't realize it. And it spread into the community and, and just, just went wild. Now, Cherokee County has 141 cases, Hall County, 138, Chatham, 110, Douglas, 105. Uh, let me just give you that actually the, the rest of the numbers here. I haven't done this in a while, just so you have a sense of how this is spreading now across the state. There are very few counties without cases. Uh, Sumter 90, Floyd 89, uh, Forsyth 85, Rockdale 82, Early 81, Coweta 76, Fayette 74, Clark 72, Houston 70, Terrell 66, 
Newton 65, Colquitt 61, Mitchell 59, Paulding 57, Richmond 56, Muskogee 47, Crisp 46, Spalding 44, Bibb 42, Lowndes 42, Tiff 42, Columbia 40, Worth 39, Troop 36, Coffee 30, Barrow 29, Glenn 29, Thomas 28, Ware 28, Dooley 27, and 23, Baldwin, Calhoun, and Polk 20, Dawson, Jackson, Whitfield 18, Butts and Lawrence 17, 16 and Peach, 15 and Camden Green, Camden Green, Lamar, Merriweather, Miller, and Turner. 14 in Effingham and Harrelson, 13 in Decatur, 12 in Liberty, 10 in Bacon, Burke, Fanning, Harris, Monroe, Murray, 9 in Bullock, Lumpkin, Madison, Pickens, Pike, and Seminole, 8 in Dodge, McDuffie, Pulaski, and Stevens, 7 in Clay, Irwin, Schley, and uh, Schley and Tombs, 6 in Appling, Ben Hill, Brooks, Catusa, Jones, Morgan, and Washington, 5 in... Baker, Johnson, Lanier, Lincoln, Macon, Talbot, and Warren. Four in Barry and Chattooga, Grady, Jasper, Jenkins, Telfair, Webster, White, and Wilkes. Three in Atkinson, Brantley, Charlton, Clinch, Franklin, Hart, Jefferson, Putnam, Rabin, Stewart, Tattnall, Taylor, Walker, and Wilkins. Two in Banks, Candler, Chattahoochee, Cook, Elbert, Emanuel, Gilmer, Habersham, Hurd, Marion, McIntosh, Screven, Twiggs, Wayne, and Wilcox. One in Blackley, Crawford, Dade, Eccles, Jeff Davis, Long, Oglethorpe, Quitman, Towns, Trutland, Union, and Wheeler, and then 309 in Unknown. And, I, you know, I, I've, I've tended to stop doing that because now basically it's all over the state. It's it To some degree is more helpful to describe where the virus is not as opposed to where the virus is, uh, except for the fact that the the county-by-county county audit numbers are troubling in some aspect uh, in just the, the widespread parts of the state. But also it is worth noting that even in rural Georgia now, they're starting to see this outbreak. There are now just uh, four counties in the five counties in the state that don't have it. Uh, Tolliver County, and you know, I, I've been pointing out that Tolliver County doesn't have it. It's surrounded by counties that do have it, except to the south. Hancock County doesn't have it as well or Glasscock County, uh, Evans County, and uh, Montgomery County, south of I-16. Neither of them have it. Uh, but those three in that pocket, uh, Tolliver, Hancock, and Glasscock counties, right there around I-20, just to the east of Lake Oconee, uh, the Sparta, Crawfordville, and Gibson areas have been without it. And I was actually talking yesterday to an epidemiologist who actually said that the odds are that the virus is there, uh, but the testing capacity is not there to detect the virus uh, that they expect now these areas probably will light up uh, eventually with with the virus. But right now, people are doing what they need to be doing, even in those parts of the state. And that is a good thing. That That is a very good thing. Now, I also want to note this morning as we get started, uh, a giant of the Georgia legislature has passed away. Uh, Jack Hill, who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, from the Reedsville area, uh, that is Tattano County. Uh, if you know, if you don't know where Reedsville is, if you know where the Altamaha River is, it, it is Tattano County borders that. Reedsville is just to the uh, east of Vidalia and Lyons. Uh, it is south of I-16. If you know where Metter is, you drive into Savannah and you know where Metter is, just south of Metter 
is Tattanoe County. You go due south from Metter and you hit Reedsville. Uh, it's the next big town over, really. And he was a just a, a giant in the state legislature. He was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and he was the guy who knew down to the penny where all the money in the state was going and where all the money in the state was coming from. At a time of, of budget deficits in Georgia and shortfalls in revenue, uh, losing him is going to have a big impact on the state. And it, it's it's sad that someone like this is going to be overshadowed by the virus, as are so many other people who are dying because uh, the, you can't have a funeral at this time. Now, uh, the, relatedly, there is a, a church down in Statesboro, so, speaking of church services, that is continuing to meet, uh, its church members are getting arrested because they are refusing to abide by the governor's order. And can I just tell you, as a theological matter, Scripture is actually very, very clear that you are in sin when you break the law. Every time you speed, you're sinning, and none of us like to think that way at a theological level, but it's true. Uh, the scripture says uh, where, where conscience and God do not conflict, honor the law and honor the emperor, honor the king, honor, honor the law. Uh, the speed limit and God do not conflict. So if you break the speed limit, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. Every single one of us has gone faster than the speed limit, I presume, if, if you drive. Uh, we're all sinners. I sin on a daily basis every time I get behind the wheel, uh, and not just with my thoughts and mouth, but but with my foot on the pedal. Um, and, and not to make light of it, but, but there there is no conscience requirement that you must physically meet in a church building. In fact, early Christians met in homes. And this governor in this state has actually said, you can meet in your church building. I, I got someone yesterday who asked me if I would reach out to the governor. They, they know I can talk to the governor. Could I reach out to the governor and beg the governor, please allow churches to meet on Sunday? And, and I wrote the person back and said, the governor's not shut down churches. There's, the governor has refused to make a distinction between essential and inessential businesses. In the governor's mind, uh, if you if you produce your income and revenue stream from your business, then for you, your business is essential. And who is he to tell you your business is not essential? So if your business needs to stay open, it can stay open. But according to the governor, there are requirements. If you want to do this to keep yourself and everyone else safe, there are requirements. And those requirements are you must check employee temperatures at the door. You must keep people six feet apart at all times, and you must prevent people from coming into contact with one another. You cannot allow people to touch one another or share things. You must have hand sanitizer in place and all those things. This church in Statesboro went out of its way to meet, keep people close together in the church pews, shake hands, hug each other, have people standing at the door greeting. And it's an open defiance of the rule of law and is sin, is sin, if you want to think about it at a theological level. And by the way, you can't argue with me on this one because there, there's ample evidence in Scripture and text, plain text in Scripture to back this up. Uh, when, when God's law and man's law conflict, God's law governs. But when it comes to actually meeting in your church building, there is nothing that requires a physical church building 
And in this case, in this state, the governor has said you can go into that building and you can worship. He's not even preventing you from doing that. If you want to go to your church on Sunday and worship, you can do it according to this governor. But every single person has to sit six feet. Actually, technically, it's every group of families must sit six feet apart. So all the people at one house can sit together on a single church pew, but they must be six feet away from every other family in that church. And if you can pull that off, go meet on Sunday. I, I would actively discourage you to, but under the rules that the governor's put forward, you could do it. And the fact that there are people who don't even want to do that, that they are so selfish and prideful themselves, treating their church building as an idol really says more about them and, and frankly, their lack of faith than it does anything about the governor or the state. And there is the taxing of resources ultimately. And again, uh, we can give you a real world example from here in Georgia. Let me give you the totals again for a couple of areas. Doherty County has 722 COVID-19 cases and 44 deaths. Lee County has 148 cases and 13 deaths. And Mitchell County has 59 cases and 10 deaths. Those are uh, the three counties, uh, Leesburg, going down uh, US-19, Leesburg to Albany, down towards Camilla. Those are adjoining counties. And the reason that they have been so hard hit, in fact, Albany, Georgia, per capita, is the third worst hit place on planet Earth. Let me say that again. Albany, Georgia, per capita, one out of every 1,000 people getting the virus, Albany, Georgia, is the third worst hit place on planet Earth. And it comes from a funeral that a preacher preached who was unknowingly infected, who spread it through the congregation, who then spread it into the community, who then spread it county to county, and they have a massive death toll and a massive infection rate. And it all comes from a church gathering. Don't tell me that God will protect you in your church. Don't tell me God will keep you from getting sick in your church. Uh, In Bartow County, the Liberty Church on the Square, Bartow County is one of the other hard-hit areas of the state. There are 182 cases and 11 deaths. Spilling over into Floyd County, 89 cases and three deaths. Many, not all, but many of the cases in Floyd and Bartow and the surrounding areas come from people who went to church in Bartow County together, and there were three people in that congregation who were unknowingly infected, and it had a cascading effect, so much so that a man from Evans, Georgia, was there at a church service after burying his father and went back to Evans, Georgia, carried the virus with him, had to go into quarantine there, and there's been an outbreak in in the Augusta area now. Uh, Not all those cases can be tied to him, mind you, but uh, some apparently can. If you want to meet for church on Sunday, I don't blame you, but do it live stream. But just understand what's going on in the state right now. I don't want to spend this whole show on on the virus today, if I can help it. There's plenty of other stuff uh, to go around. Uh, But, but let's, let's, let's not, let's not get into this commercial break without making two points. One, The situation in Georgia is still volatile. And two, everybody staying home is actually improving the situation more rapidly than the model suggested. So still, stay home. Now, what about that supply chain and the toilet paper? Let's talk about that when we come back. 
All righty. Now that I've I've broken down the data and everything else for you, can can we move? There is still virus stuff we got to deal with, but there's other stuff as well. Real quick, I I, I want to talk about Cardinal Pell. I am not Catholic. Uh, I, I man, y'all y'all. So you know, I, I am. I, I go to a PCA church. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I moved to Macon. Uh, in 93 to go to Mercer University and I uh, met my wife there. Our roommates were engaged to each other. That's how I met my wife. My first Sunday in, in Macon, Georgia, decided I would be good and get up and go to church and, and went to a Baptist church in Macon. And there was a woman in the pulpit, which was new to me. And then her sermon was on how we need to be more sacred and less scriptural. We need to spend less time in the Bible and and more time connecting with our soul. And I was just stunned. And I went back to campus and I called my pastor that I grew up with at the First Baptist Church in Jackson, Louisiana. And I said, Brother Joe, what on earth do I do? And he said, go find a church that has the letters PCA after it. I'd be one but for the sprinkling. <laughs> I'll never forget that. He doesn't He it doesn't even recall this conversation. Uh, and so I, I went to First Presbyterian in Macon, Georgia, and, and only left there after getting married. Uh, for a few years, we moved to Vineville Presbyterian. We needed a smaller church. Really, we needed a smaller Sunday school at the time. The Sunday school class we were in was well over 50 people at the time. And, and showed no signs of breaking into smaller groups. We just, we needed a smaller group and uh, we loved the church. We had, we had a child. We were the only couple in the church that had children and we wound up moving back to first president. We've been there ever since. Uh, and not nearly as engaged as we should be, frankly, in church, but nonetheless, uh, so I'm in a PCA church now. Now I've been going to reform theological seminary uh, and I am, I, I listen, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. I am, uh, you can hate me if you must. Uh, I am totally down with the reform faith in Calvinism. And I have a contingent of friends, a diehard contingent of friends, some of whom are quite famous, who are insistent that I join the Catholic church, that, that I am, they tell me all the time that I am a, a ready-made Catholic and I am, nope, nope. John Calvin and I are, are we are, we are friends, <laughs> but nonetheless, I, I've, I've been fascinated from afar with Cardinal Pell. Uh, cardinal Pell was a conservative bishop, became a cardinal. John Paul II made him a cardinal, I believe. And he was put in charge of the Vatican Bank and discovered all sorts of financial irregularities within the Vatican financial apparatus, uh, brought down the banking institution, and surprise, 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 he was accused of uh, abusing two boys in Australia back in the 90s. And there was a lot in the case that did not add up. Uh, and the very first trial was a hung jury and the, the prosecutors insisted on pursuing it again. The, the prosecutor had political ambitions in Australia and pursued it again and was able to get a conviction. Uh, and the Australian Supreme court yesterday threw out the case and said there were too many irregularities in the case. Uh, it should have never gone forward and should have raised reasonable doubt. But he's been in jail for six years uh, appealing his case up to the Australian Supreme Court. 
a fascinating situation. Who knows uh, how the Lord will use him now? Um, but man, there are a lot of people around the world who just the moment he found those irregularities within the Vatican said, oh, something's going to happen to this guy. And he got carted off to jail for six years and was freed yesterday. Uh, good thing. Uh, now, we got to talk about crosses when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. It is 39, 35 after the hour. The phone number, if you want to call in and be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I want to pull the curtain back real quick uh, so you understand one of the, the real-world problems we're first-world, real-world problems dealing with. Uh, you may occasionally, through the show today, uh, hear me fade away temporarily or, or sound slightly garbled. And we are running this program uh, with, with a, an interesting little device uh, over the series of tubes known as the Internet. We were previously using a phone line, uh, which if, if it got unstable, we could go back to, but it's not quite the same level of quality is the connection we now have. It it's also takes a little longer to connect and it has its own uh, instability and problems. And we've been wanting to get away from it for a while. And I finally just bit the bullet and, and decided to do it. Well, the problem is that there are an inordinate number of people on the series of tubes known as the internet right now. In fact, I had to shut down live streaming because it was the live streaming that was causing all the connection problems. Uh, and it, 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 the live stream was actually trying to connect to Facebook was in addition to causing me trouble with doing my own radio show, even causing trouble with the call screening program, uh, just because it was so much trying to get out onto the internet from my house at the same time. And people are dealing with this trouble right now. The, the rise in streaming is pretty intense across the country right now, but interestingly enough, the Obama administration pushed forward regulations uh, back in 2015, 2016, called net neutrality regulations. They were pushed by people on the left. And I can't really tell you what net neutrality really is uh, for the reason that the left continued to move the goalposts. And every time everyone would agree on a definition, they would keep adding to it. And essentially it meant uh, that your internet service provider had to hand over control of their internet platform that they built to the government to control, that it had to be treated like a, a phone call or it had to be treated like uh, anything else. Well, the problem here is that uh, internet service providers, take, take whether it's uh, I use Cox uh, Communications or AT&T, I keep thinking about putting AT&T fiber in my house, um, and on and on it goes, that they put products on the internet as well, and they would like to prioritize their products. For example, uh, Cox pushes over the same lines as its internet signal, its, its TV service, and AT&T now increasingly does, in addition to phone calls, doing that, and it would like to be able to prioritize its own stuff. Well, the net neutrality regulations were that a phone company or cable company could not prioritize its own stuff over the lines like others. Now, I have to tell you that they don't actually do that to a level that discriminates against, say, Netflix. They don't downgrade Netflix so that you are pushed to take their own service. They never have. And the way it has worked in this country, and I'm trying to, to simplify this a little bit for people who don't want to get into the into the the easy or into the hard technical aspects of this, but essentially what happens is Netflix and your internet provider work together 
to make everything as efficient as possible. And there has to be a collaborative relationship between the content company and the cable company or the, the phone company that's providing you your internet. So, for example, Netflix works as efficiently as possible to make its product move over the Internet as quickly as possible, routing it in different ways. In fact, you can take uh, one second of a TV show. That one second can be routed from five different locations around the world coming together at the end at your TV screen so you can see it. And the different packets of information route differently to make everything more efficient. Well, Contrast us with Europe. In Europe, they embraced net neutrality. And in Europe, it essentially required that the cable or the internet providers not discriminate between their content and the content providers, between YouTube, between Google, between Netflix, between Apple and the like. The result is that in Europe, the content providers had no incentive to have to work to make things transmit as efficiently as possible because there was a mandate that your internet company treat everything equally. So in this country, there is no mandate. So if Netflix, Apple, Google, Facebook, you name it, become inefficient in the way they transmit data, then your phone company, your cable company, wherever you get your cable from, can degrade their service on their lines. In Europe, they're not allowed to. So the net result is that traffic in Europe moves, internet traffic in Europe moves much more inefficiently than here. In addition, in Europe, more people live in cities than here. There are way more people spread out in this country. So in Europe, you hear all these, and in Japan and South Korea, you hear all these really impressive statistics uh, that they have way faster internet. Well, of course they do because you've got uh, thousands more people per square mile there. It's easier to string very fast internet in urban areas than it is to go into suburban, exurban, and rural areas in this country. But what is the result now? Well, as we are in this global pandemic and people are sheltering in place around the world, Europeans are having way more internet instability than in this country. We're having blips. It is certainly slow in parts of, of, of the world. It is certainly slow in this country. Last night, my kids kept asking me, what is going on with the, uh, what's going on with the internet? Why is it so slow? Well, it's because there are thousands of people in our area now streaming internet content uh, and as a result of that, it's slowing things down. But it's not nearly as bad as what other parts of the world are experiencing right now. Uh, the, 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 the slowness in Europe in particular is super intense right now as opposed to here. So it, it is a good thing that we don't have the net neutrality regulations. The Trump administration came in and rapidly repealed the net neutrality regulations and it has helped tremendously. And in fact, uh, major Democratic policy experts are walking away from the idea of net neutrality. See now how it's working in Europe versus here. And that's a good thing. There Now, the, the agitators will always agitate. And the agitators want your Internet service provider to be treated as a regulated utility, which is, would be a bad thing because it would hamper all sorts of innovation. But nonetheless, uh, there you have it now. Can I, I want to spend a moment updating you on the cross story because it is a level of aggravation still for me, but nonetheless, on Saturday, there are, if you weren't here yesterday, you missed the story. On Saturday, I bought a cross from my yard. There are two brothers, teenagers 
who are making crosses in Middle Georgia as part of a Faith Over Fear campaign. It's become a nationwide campaign. Here in Middle Georgia, a number of people have been making crosses. These two brothers have been making crosses. Uh, they're, they're, the cross is about seven foot tall, six and a half to seven feet tall. And they're putting them out around the area. They're selling them for $20. And the proceeds are then going to buy snacks for doctors and nurses at local hospitals. So it is a good charitable endeavor. People can't go to church for Easter or for Palm Sunday for that matter. And so people's yards are getting decorated with crosses and people are breaking out the Christmas lights. They're wrapping the Christmas lights around the crosses. Uh, the, The light shines in the darkness, scripture says, the darkness shall not overcome it. And at a time of global pandemic, people are keeping these crosses turned on in their yards. The the crosses are shining everywhere, brightly. They're pretty. And I put one in my yard on Saturday, and I put a picture up Saturday night on Instagram, and it turned into a thing. I woke up Sunday morning, and Newsweek ran a story. The headline was that I was being criticized for putting a burning cross in my yard. Yeah, you heard that right. Uh, Newsweek ran a story on Sunday morning that I had put a burning cross in my yard because I put a cross in my yard and wrapped it in Christmas lights like several of my other neighbors had done and several of the people in other neighborhoods had done uh, to represent the light shining in the darkness that the darkness could not overcome. Uh, I have been subjected in the last 48 hours to just extraordinary hate mail from random trolls on the internet. Uh, it has overwhelmed uh, my, my email, uh, comments and direct messages on Instagram, uh, people sending me messages on Facebook and Twitter, uh, just, just vile stuff, uh, accusing me of being in the Klan, of burning a cross and the like. Well, we already had a number of people in our neighborhood who were doing it. And, and by the way, it's, it's multiracial, it's multiethnic, uh, black families, Hispanic families, Asian families, uh, Indian families, all of whom are Christian, all of whom uh, celebrate Christmas or celebrate Easter. And in the last 24 hours, a buddy of mine in my neighborhood texted me and said, I needed to go out and drive around the neighborhood. And so I did. And there are now at least three dozen crosses in the neighborhood uh, there had been about a dozen to, to eh, a dozen and a half, uh, so so around 16, 17 crosses, and now they're close to 40. Uh, next neighborhood over has done the same thing now, people putting crosses in their yard, wrapping them in Christmas lights for Easter, maybe for longer, as as long as we're all stuck inside, might as well let them shine bright at night. Uh, but it, it, it's been deeply encouraging. Uh, the neighbors have them, all the neighbors now have them. Uh, one of my neighbors actually put one up and, and said she can't get into her storage unit to put her Christmas lights up. So it's there, but there aren't lights on it. But mo- most everybody has them wrapped in Christmas lights and it has become a thing. Uh, and it has been encouraging to see. It has been encouraging. It, you know, there is the scripture, going back to the, the Cardinal Pell story, being released from prison in Australia six years after being jailed and now having his case thrown out. There's that scripture, uh, Genesis fifty twenty. Uh, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good. Joseph's brothers sold him off into slavery. They were jealous of him. Uh, had he not been sold off into slavery like that he, in the way it was, he would have never found uh, favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. He would have never been put in a position where he could have moved his family from uh, the Holy Land to Egypt uh, for protection during a famine. And a God meant it for good. And there are so many stories like that. For example, 
in New York City, Samaritan's Purse has been setting up a field hospital in Central Park. Gay rights activists are opposed to Samaritan's Purse. It is the ministry now run by Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. Franklin Graham has become a bit of a partisan for the president. And the left is very aggravated with him. And gay rights activists in particular are deeply, deeply upset with him because Samaritan's Purse requires those in management positions there and and who work with Samaritan's Purse to maintain biblical orthodoxy on sexual relations. Uh, No sex outside of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, Transgenderism is is a a world-oriented thing, not a God-oriented thing. And so gay rights activists have been calling on the mayor and the health commissioner and the city council of New York to drive Samaritan's Purse out of the city. Now, I want to put this all in perspective for you. New York City is in a major pandemic with massive loss of life. More than 50% of cases in this country are in New York City, and the hospitals are maxed out there. And here comes a charity, a Christian charity, with doctors and nurses and supplies and builds a field hospital. The American media criticizes it. Gay rights activists criticize it, and the politicians in New York, to curry favor with the gay rights activists, begin to criticize Samaritan's Purse. What happens with all the exposure? The Episcopal Cathedral of St. John the Divine, one of the largest church buildings on planet Earth, and by the way, the Episcopal Church, not exactly friendly to the values of Samaritan's Purse, uh, but the Episcopal Church is now partnering partnering with Samaritan's Purse to get them out of Central Park and let them use the Cathedral of St. John the Divine as a field hospital. They're setting up over 400 beds in addition to some of the existing field hospitals. They're not completely abandoning Central Park. They're just not going to expand there anymore. They're going to use this cathedral, and they're going to use the crypt of the cathedral as a staging area, and they're going to use the main floor, uh, parts of the main floor, to house patients who cannot be housed in the city. In all of this exposure and and the the Episcopal Church reaching out and willing to help and partner with Samaritan's Purse to do that, and again, there's so much ideological disparity between the two, you would otherwise not see them working together, but it all came from so many people uh, hurling invective at Samaritan's Purse, which was there to help. And by the way, they don't care whether you're gay, you're straight, uh, you're transgender, you're, you're not, they're willing to house you and give you the medical care you need. And yet they're having invective heaped upon them by progressive activists because of their worldview. And so the Episcopal Church, which shares the world worldview of the gay rights activists, is actually partnering now with Samaritan's Purse. The, the activist minute for evil, God minute for good. What a ministry activity they're able to do in New York City now. Uh, it, it's amazing how so much of the world can be turned on its head. Uh, at times like this. But it's also what, what's also amazing to me is how many people are seeing in this crisis that their priors are all confirmed. And, and that should bother all of us. Let me tell you what I mean by that when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. And yes, you can call in 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number. You can also reach me on social media, E.W. Erickson. You'll like me the best on Instagram, but you can get me at at Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, E.W. Erickson. You know, one of the things, and I put this up as a very brief Twitter thread, and, and just so you understand, I don't write about politics. I'll talk about politics. I'll tweet about politics, but I, but I don't professionally write about politics this week. Uh, I, I have since... 
since I professionally, since I left my law practice in uh, 2005 and became the full-time editor of redstate.com, uh, I, I have never written about politics the week of Holy Week that I can remember. There may have been the first couple of years I did, but I got into a pattern, and it, it is deeply frustrating because particularly at a time like this, I feel like I should be writing about politics, but it also makes me focus more on the, the other stuff, the stuff that actually matters more than politics because pol- the tendency of people today is to treat everything politically. The tendency today is to every every bit of information out there has to be about politics. Every there's a side angle of politics of every discussion down to what you eat. There's actually a a story I'll get into later on uh, the politics of sourdough, believe it or not. Uh, Y'all, by the way, as a complete aside, I was in a bookstore the other day. And there was a a book on feminist baking, which I I fell out. I didn't know there was such a thing, a feminist baking book. Yes. Um, it, I, there was no section on making sandwiches, just, just so you know, <laughs> but, 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 but delving deep, um, y'all I'll le- leave it to your imagination as to a discussion of where you can find wild yeast. Yeah. Oh, oh, some of you are starting to realize where the feminists were. Yes. To make your sourdough. Yes, I wish I was making that up. Nonetheless, I digress. The politics of sourdough, even um, the haves and the only rich white people have the time to be home to make sourdough. Sourdough is an example of inequality in America that the rich, rich white folks have time to make it. (laughs) Can't make this stuff up. But what I what I find so annoying is that. So many people are using this crisis to confirm their priors. And what what I mean by that is, and look, I'm not talking about the super hyper-partisan people, and arguably I'm a super hyper-partisan person. I was an elected Republican uh, for a while. Uh, I I grew up in Republican politics. I I ran a website called Red State. I run a website called The Resurgent. I do a conservative political action conference. Um, I shouldn't call it a conservative, that that CPAC. I I do a conservative conference. It's not a political action conference, but had the vice president, who is a longtime friend there, uh, had Doug Collins there, had uh, members of the House Freedom Caucus there. Uh, had Senator Purdue there. We'll, we'll do it again, not this year, but next year. We'll do it all over again. I, I'm a partisan. But what I find notable about this crisis right now is how so many people who claim not to be partisan, but are, are using this crisis to confirm all of their priors. What I mean by that is can, we should all be able to acknowledge that Donald Trump closing travel with China actually was a good thing, and it did buy us time, even as the experts disagreed. And the Democrats were accusing him of racism, and and Joe Biden was accusing him of xenophobia for doing it. it. It was a good thing. It was worth him doing. At the same time, the president should have been beefing up the supply chain, knowing it was going to be a problem. Uh, Peter Navarro uh, had a memo out in, in January saying there could be 500,000 Americans dead, and we needed to boost our domestic supply chain, and the president didn't. That That was wrong. It was right for the president of the United States to reassure people that this was not going to be bad, to try to get people to not panic, to try to get people to stay calm. It was right for him to do that. It was wrong for the president to be so dismissive of the virus that he planted a seed within so many people that this is all a scam. This is a media-generated creation. He, he could have done a better job in that regard. There are rights and there are wrongs, and we should be able objectively to acknowledge those things. 
But there are people I see who claim to be objective on social media, particularly on Twitter, who claim to be objective, and all of their priors have been confirmed by the crisis. All of those who claim to be objective and like the president claim he's there's been nothing done wrong. Nothing at all was done wrong. Everything is right. And there are those who hate the president who cannot acknowledge that the president did anything wrong. Everything is bad. Everything is wrong. The president did nothing good. When you are confronted by, you know, none of us are ever always right. And it pains me to say that. Uh, you're, you're, But none of us, even our wives, uh, none of us are ever always right. And when you see people who are convinced in crisis and a time of testing that everything they've ever thought and said was always right and the other people are always wrong, that actually speaks poorly of that person and not of the other person. And I'm seeing a lot of that on social media, a lot of the supposed experts and and the the objective people out there in in punditry, the ones who try to claim some level of objectivity, who are just as big a partisan hacks as everyone else. And it's on the left and the right. It's not just the left and it's not just the right. And it's also telling, I put this up, and how many people on the right and the left are pointing fingers at each other. It is a terrible problem across the board right now. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The second hour of the show. How you doing? We got all sorts of stuff to cover today. We'll get into the Roosevelt. I know a lot of people have been asking uh, about this USS Roosevelt situation. We'll get to it. Uh, The phone number, if you want to call in, if you want to weigh in on anything, you want to ask any questions, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got a sponsor, a new sponsor, and I'm actually excited about them because they're actually a household product uh, in our house, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I, I, I love them dearly. I love the company. It is a local Georgia company. It is Mrs. Griffith's barbecue sauce, uh, Griffin's barbecue sauce. It's, it, it, in all seriousness, they are a, a mustard-based barbecue sauce. Uh, they're low in sugar for those of you who, who don't want a super sweet barbecue sauce. They're all over that all the Kroger's, they're at the Walmarts in Macon and South Georgia. They're, they're at all the Winn Dixies, they're at Bilo's, they're at Piggly Wiggly's, they're at all sorts of thousands of independent grocers. And uh, they are the oldest barbecue sauce uh, in the United States that is still in production, available for sale. And they're a Georgia based company, and you may not have heard of them, but again, 85 years old, they've been making this for that long and selling it. They are made in Georgia. Mrs. Griffins.com uh, is their website, M R S G R I F F I N S.com. Uh, and they're offering a great deal right now. Go to their website, Mrs. Griffins.com. Uh, for their 85th birthday, you, you buy two, you get a third one for free. And again, it's good stuff. Uh, if you want a sense of it in my house, um, if you're from South Georgia, you probably, you're familiar with this type of recipe. It, it mustard based. Uh, a barbecue sauce, and my wife uh, basically pours it over pork chops, bake it in the oven, um, and you do it really low, like 250, 275, and hour and a half, two hours later, you get these fall apart, uh, pull apart, pull pork within barbecue sauce from pork chops. It's fantastic. Uh, it's a preferred meal at our house all the time. I'll send out the recipe, uh, but you need to go to mrsgriffins.com. And thanks to them for sponsoring it. It was very kind of them to do. I'm happy to support a local business and and they wanted to step up and do advertising. And I use them in the house anyway. And I can guarantee you in the supply chain, they're available because I've seen them in the store and I know they're driving around stocking the shelves themselves. Unlike some of the national chains. I I went to Publix the other day. They were out of Heinz ketchup. 
completely sold out of Heinz ketchup of all things. Uh, and I, I went to the Kroger, if you're familiar with making, went to the Kroger on Zebulon, they were as well gone. And I'm sorry, I don't use hunts. My wife and I fight over ketchup. I, I, I use Heinz. I could care, couldn't care less about John Kerry and Teresa Heinz. Heinz ketchup is the only decent ketchup in the world. I don't understand when you go to a fancy restaurant and they try to duplicate Heinz ketchup. It is garbage. Just get me Heinz ketchup. Leave the bottle on the table. I don't need the little thing. You know, the, 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 the annoying trend for me are the restaurants. I use a lot of ketchup. I like ketchup. Ketchup is my preferred condiment, my daughter as well. And I do not understand the restaurants that want to give me a little dainty little cup of ketchup. I want the bottle. Give me the bottle of ketchup, and it needs to be Heinz, not that um, uh, Sir Sir Kensington crap or or Hunts or the generic um, ketchup. Nope, I, I want the good stuff, and the good stuff is Heinz. I didn't intend to start a monologue on ketchup this morning. I'm just saying. And thank you again to Mrs. Griffin's Barbecue Sauce. Go find it at your local grocery store. I'll send you some recipes. Uh, it's good stuff. But... But, but, but I do want to talk about the supply chain. I, I, I saw Abby, the, the, the PD in, in Athens, who, believe it or not, I, I have to remind her, she technically is my boss for this radio program. The, the Athens, uh, WGAU in Athens is our flagship station for this program. And uh, we put it together, uh, working with Pete and Abby in Athens, getting it out the door. And I saw she liked my tweet last night on the supply chain. Because, y'all, I've been telling you the supply chain is fine. And I'm starting to not believe myself because I can't find toilet paper. Now, full disclosure, I have taken my own advice. I, I, I do practice what I preach. I've been telling everybody since January that this virus was coming. If it got here, it was going to be a big deal. We hoped it wouldn't. But if it did, it was going to be big. You need to start uh, buying up stuff, not, not buy out grocery stores, but every time you go buy a little more. And since January, I have been buying extra toilet paper. Now, we get ours on subscribe and save from Amazon. Every month, we get a giant box of toilet paper. But as I've gone to the grocery store over the last couple of months, I have tried to buy a little extra along the way. And so I got enough toilet paper to last me probably through the end of May. But I've noticed every time I go to the grocery store, I do go by and I'm getting to the point like, oh my gosh, Maybe I do need to buy another roll or two. And every time I go to the grocery store, it's completely sold out. Now, anecdote is not data. And there are grocery stores that are plenty fine with toilet paper. There, there are plenty of grocery stores out there that have toilet paper. But the Publix across the street from me can't keep it on the shelves. The Walmart up the road from me can't keep it on the shelves. And the two Kroger's that I regularly go to can't keep it on the shelves. And I went to a third Kroger that I rarely go to by the the, the local uh, golf club here in town. And, and they were sold out too. They're sold out of every paper product. In fact, all the paper towels are gone. All, all of the wet wipes are gone. All of the... Uh, all, all of the toilet paper is gone uh, down to napkins. And all I can presume are people are buying their, their Vanity Fair napkin brand to use and supplement to the toilet paper. So they're gone too. There is clearly something going on with the supply chain. And I'm at the point of a month into this where I am amazed, number one, at the amount of things that the stores do have, but also increasingly I am surprised to see the lack of availability of common household items. And there was actually a great story I read. Uh, I presumed it was some bureaucrat somewhere or something uh, shifting things around and uh, making demands. And there was actually a great story that it 
turns out that a lot of there are two problems. The one problem is that because so many more people are home right now, there actually is a greater need for toilet paper in houses. But also, uh, a lot of these companies that make the consumer-facing toilet papers also make a lot of industrial paper products, and they've ramped up the industrial side of things right now to help hospitals and others uh, at the expense of consumers, which is fascinating. It actually is. Uh, I actually am an opponent of uh, of, of price gouging laws. I think price gouging laws are bad because I assure you, if a roll of toilet paper right now were $10, they would still be on the shelves at all your local grocery stores. And anyone who needed toilet paper would be able to buy a roll of toilet paper and would probably conserve it way more than just yanking on the roll, getting a big wad of it, and wiping their butt, which you'd be surprised at the number of people who apparently do that. Uh, there is data. I don't ask. I did not survey. Nope. It's, it's out there. Just, you can go find it yourself. Nonetheless, you get my point. Uh, prices go up. Consumers restrain their spending. How many people have hoarded toilet paper and and, and paper towels? Uh, The reports that have come into this very program from people all over the state of Georgia is phenomenal. The number of people who have called this program in the last month, seeing people carrying out large shopping carts full of toilet paper and paper towels or or um, two-liter bottles of Coke and things like that, if the toilet paper price was allowed to rise, you wouldn't be seeing this. You know what prices are allowed to rise? Meat prices. Meat prices have gone up. Uh, the price for ground beef has gone up. The price for chicken and pork have gone up. And they've gone up pretty significantly in the past two weeks. And do you know what? When you go to your local grocery store, what can you find right now? Meat. The meat is there in most cases. Not all of it. I was looking for brisket the other day and was thinking, man, is this pandemic? And then it hit me up. Passover's next week. Everybody, Jewish people have the greatest meals for Passover. Uh, you Christians and your, I don't like ham. And you Christians and your ham should 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 be like the Jews and do brisket. It is way better, way tastier. Uh, matzo ball soup and brisket is the, one of the greatest meals you will ever have on planet Earth. And instead of this the ham, I, I just, I don't understand. I'm not a ham eater. And my wife loves it. I'm just not a ham eater. But nonetheless, you can't find brisket right now. And that has nothing to do with pandemic. It has everything to do with Passover, which is acceptable to me. But you can't find toilet paper because people are hoarding it and they can't jack up the price. And if they jacked up the price, you would be able to find toilet paper at the grocery store right now, along with the rest of us. There is clearly a supply chain issue with some of this stuff. I was talking to a friend of mine last night. and She said at her grocery store, she hasn't been able to find heavy cream anywhere. She lives in the northern Dallas suburbs in Texas. Cannot find heavy cream at any location. And she's like, I got toilet paper in in my grocery stores, but I can't find heavy cream anywhere. Uh, A lady who lives up in Montana told me that she cannot find Masa Harina to make tamales in her grocery stores that she has driven all over and cannot find it anymore. Apparently, everywhere in America is making sourdough right now, except in Montana, and they're making tamales. Just it, it's it's crazy how regionally things are different. Now, uh, I can get off this tire right here. I want to go to Melvin. Uh, Melvin, welcome. How are you, sir? Good to hear from you. Good. Just had a quick comment. That is, number one, that Kumo should shut de Blasio down because he's been requesting everybody come to the state to help. Number two, it's amazing, um, as with the cross in your yard, because the wonderful thing about this is that we have to look on the bright side. If Samaritan's Purse is now getting assistance from someone that they would have probably never gotten before just like your neighbors are supporting yourself now so and number three 
I should say, whenever you are winning an argument against a liberal, you're called a racist. It's kind of simple. <laughs> Man, I, you know, I got to tell you, the number of people, you know, it's just so it, it, funny story here. Melvin, thank you for that. We, when I was on city council in Macon, Georgia, we had a city councilwoman uh, who is still there, uh, who actually, she, she's personally, she's a very nice woman. We just politically disagree with everything. Um, and she referred to me all the time as Eric, and she would spell my name with three Ks, Eric KKK Erickson. Uh, it disagreed with me vehemently on all sorts of stuff. And, you know, it was amazing how often an argument can turn into race. Let me give you a, a, a wonderful example of this. We were trying to save money. Now, I was on the city council in Macon, uh, which thankfully, uh, praise Jesus, the city council in Macon no longer exists. It is now consolidated, Macon, Bibb County, uh, which has given us a, a smaller council. Macon, by the way, was the only partisan. When, when the Macon City Council existed, it was the only partisan council in the state of Georgia. Even Atlanta had a nonpartisan city council. And Macon actually had the second largest city council in the state after Atlanta, even though Macon only had uh, 95,000 people within the city limits at most. And it could become extremely dysfunctional. And, and thankfully, I got there and, and helped run the campaigns of a number of members, Democratic members of, of the city council. And uh, as a result, wound up getting a committee chairmanship, could sit on the executive committee of the council. And I'll, I'll never forget one time and, and still have some great friends who were there with me. And we were trying to find ways to save money in city hall. And one of the issues came down to a vendor for paper products, including toilet paper in City Hall. And it became a race issue because the, the vendor who the toilet paper was being brought from was black and you could get it at a cheaper price from, from a company. And I don't even know what the racial composition of the company was. It was just a company. And it, it became a thing. And I was always, I was always flabbergasted uh, with, with the racial politics. And I was in favor of saving money and, and was pegged as a racist. It was just, a, it was a bizarre experience. And, and, you know, it was, it was in the beginning of my political career, not as a, uh, not as a public servant, but as someone who was a pundit and, and wrote, I was actually hired at CNN while I was on city council. I got my radio job. I actually had to leave uh city council. I wasn't going to run for reelection. It was a miserable job, man. I hated it. It was the worst job ever. And it was only part-time. But I was going to serve out the term, except I got a job in radio and the radio company would not allow me to be an elected official and on radio because there are FCC rules regarding um, uh, elected officials in radio airtime, e even though I would have been outside the area. They, di they didn't want it. They didn't want the hassle. So I had to step aside, uh, which was fantastic with me because I was ready to be done anyway. I was missing a lot of the meetings because I was traveling so much for TV and CNN. Uh, so I was done. I was out. Uh, but it was it was fascinating to me. It was an eye opening experience how so many people could interpret race so often and be so uncharitable to people on the other side. Uh, Republican and Democrat alike, just presuming the worst about someone, not recognizing life experience, among other things. Now, there are truly there, there really are in politics contemptible people on both sides of the aisle, by the way. Uh, I, I am a, I know of a, a very famous journalist who probably all of you would know who was on the right. And I don't do writers. I am I am not I am a vain person and I am not that vain. I do not 
for example, insist in green rooms that I have all green M&Ms or all brown M&Ms or my water must be chilled to precisely 70 degrees. But I have one thing that I insist on. When I go to events and I know that this particular person is going to be there, and I'm, I will never tell you who it is. Some of you, <laughs> some of you may guess it. But there, there is a particular person in conservative media who is, is quite well known. And whenever I go speak in an event and I know he's going to be there, I insist, I insist that I not sit at his table. And do you know why? The very first few times that this happened to me, the man would eat my food. And apparently he's notorious for doing that, particularly your dessert. You got a piece of chocolate cake there. You better lick it when you sit down at the table and make sure he sees it or he's going to eat it. And yes, this has happened to me on multiple occasions. And since then, I have heard the most bizarre stories about this particular person in conservative media. Uh, And and many of you would know him and you would think he's a fine person and he's really not. Uh, And I, I have heard some of the most bizarre, insane stories about this person. And so the, the only thing I ever insist on, I, I, I couldn't care less if there's anything in the break room. I couldn't care less what the temperature of the room was. I couldn't care less whether I use a lav mic or whether I use a podium mic or whether there is a podium. I, I, I don't care about any of that stuff. And I get asked all the time, what do you want in your green room? What I, I, I couldn't care less. The only thing I insist on is that you never, ever sit me anywhere near this particular person if we're there together because I am so tired of having him eat my food at the table and then he does it to the person on the other side as well and you can always tell that this person has no idea that there's a reputation for this guy doing that because they look horrified as he reaches over and grabs their chocolate cake and eats it the number of people who are texting I have to know who you're talking about I have to know y'all I I, listen I'm I got lots of gossip about the conservative movement because because I've been in it for a while and and I got man so I have some friends who just genuinely hate each other uh, within the conservative they, they they will not be in the same room together and I always feel very awkward because I'm friends with all of them I, I try to get along with everybody uh, and you know so I'm 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 friends even in radio I, a, a lot of the national hosts I'm friends with. And it's always been so interesting to me that that the the, the collegiality and in, in, in whatnot in public and behind the scenes people who just don't like each other and that's one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got. Uh, Brett Bozell, who runs the Media Research Center, is is a dear friend. Uh, man, I I love the guy tremendously. Uh, he's a wonderful human being. I've got friends who just they're like he's a grifter. No, I mean man, man I have seen this man uh, bring people together. Uh, for, for the good of so many, he's just a, he's a wonderful person and I love him. And I will never forget when I first got to know him, Red State that I was running at the time had been bought by Eagle Publishing up in Washington, D.C. If you know Regnery Publishing, Regnery, uh, they do Oliver North's books, Newt Gingrich's books, Michelle Malka's books, Ann Coulter's books, uh, big conservative publisher, Regnery and Red State were both owned by Eagle Publishing and, uh, Brett was on the board and he was there for a meeting one day and we'd gotten to know each other. And he asked me what I was doing, and, and I, I mentioned that I was flying home, and he, he thought I lived in D.C. I said, no, I live in Macon, Georgia. And he he stopped me, and he literally put his hands on my shoulders, and he said, do not ever move. And 
I kind of chuckled and said, I'm not. And, and he got this really serious look in his face. And he says, you are going to give up job opportunities by living in Macon, Georgia. And you will regret the job opportunities you've given up. And I want you to know that you should not because you will be a better person by never moving to Washington, D.C. And he said he, he grew up there and he's moved his office um, outside the Beltway, so to speak, but still there because they kind of have to be. But he's, he says it just it, it does something to you to be there and you should avoid it like the plague. And uh, so I did. I've never moved to Washington, D.C., and I have given up job opportunities. I have given up TV deals. I have given up TV contracts. I have given up radio opportunities along the way, uh, and I never have really regretted it because I would have regretted it. And there are times I think, man, you know, I could be further along in my radio and TV career right now uh, had I taken those opportunities and moved my family, but they would have been miserable, and I would have been miserable. Uh, and so I get to be a part of the conservative movement, but also not living there. And I, I really owe that to, to Brent Bozell for encouraging me not to do that. Uh, he's just, he's a great guy. But along the way, I have accumulated uh, just impressive amounts of gossip within the conservative movement. Some of it thanks to him filling me in on, on details about stuff. It's just been, wow. But that one guy, nope, he will eat your dessert if you sit next to him. You can't do it, but I'm not going to tell you who I'm talking about. That would be scandalous. I, I just, I don't know whether I should apologize or just, just cheer myself on. I, I, <laughs> I, I was just saying down the line to Jim, you know, I get up every morning and I outline this program. I send Charlie uh, the audio clips that I want cut up. I, I feel bad because he, he cut up a bunch for me this morning. And I have yet to even get to him. I have I have barely talked about a single thing I intended to talk about today, uh, and I, I don't know whether that's good or that's bad. But I'm just I'm I'm still I don't know the the virus stuff is is there anything else out there we can talk about? And I'm just I, I'll get to the Roosevelt because I want to talk about the Roosevelt stuff here in a minute. But uh, random random um <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy, we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get back on track here. Peloton, you know Peloton. A, a friend of mine has been telling me. In fact, I've got several friends who are in the Peloton cult. If you don't know what the Peloton cult is, there, there are actually some competitors out there. Uh, Echelon, for example, makes a great bike, uh, and and they're not nearly as expensive. You don't have to pay a ton for Peloton. I think is what Echelon's uh, thing is. It use your iPad instead of the 27 inch display. I've been thinking if, if I got some extra cash, I would actually get one of the Peloton treadmills. I don't really know that I want the bike. Um, I, I, I don't know sitting, sitting in the bike and a buddy of mine has one. And he says, you know, actually, you know what? I can't tell you what he said because it, it's too vulgar for radio, but nonetheless, you get used to it after a while. And, and he's, he's lost weight and gotten in shape. And, you know, so for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, Peloton is a, is a cult. It, it is a company, but it's a cult. Uh, people get into this thing and you can subscribe to live streaming uh, exercise shows. So you have your favorite cyclist at the Peloton studio and you, you sit on your bike and that person takes you through a class and, and your name is on a leaderboard that they can see because you're all connected to the internet. And so the, the coach is cheering you on personally uh, through the exercise, along with all the other people watching. And it, 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 people are totally engaged in this, totally engaged in this. 
And the net result of this is they have taken on this cult-like following where as a business model, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But people are hooked on these classes and these trainers. Well, Peloton has had to cancel classes for April. Uh, we are seven days into April, and they're having to cancel the rest of the month because one of their trainers has gotten the virus. And yeah, so Peloton is a little bit nervous because people can't actually engage anymore. Um, wow, uh, poor poor Peloton. By the way, I, I I've got a friend of mine who was devastated by this news. Uh, I have a friend, you know, I've got a, I, I've got several friends of mine. I, I actually think, well, I can count them all on one hand, but I need most of the fingers. Uh, I, I've got friends of mine who are, are addicts and the four of them, all of them have very similar stories. They in college got addicted to drugs. They went through rehab and they still have addictive personalities and they became addicted to exercise. And as a result of this, uh, several of them are really big into CrossFit, which, listen, I like CrossFit. Uh, I got my 20-pound wall ball yesterday, so I can start throwing it again. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they, they are super addicted. And they're also, like, super in shape, like zero body fat, and, but they've poured their addiction into exercise. One of them actually wound up in the hospital because they were so addicted to exercise. I forget what it's called where your muscle begins to break down and it can be fatal, but they were exercising so much uh, that they nearly died from it and and joked that they should go back to drugs because they, they never wound up in the hospital on drugs. They just wrecked their life. Um, but nonetheless, but I, I've, got, I've got one friend in particular who is addicted to Peloton. And has a very good job, uh, has, has come out of drug recovery years ago, rebuilt his life, still has very addicted personality, uh, was addicted to work, uh, has done very well for himself at work, and has channeled this into exercise twice a day. He's got now the Peloton treadmill, and he's got the Peloton uh, bike, and he does the bike in the morning and, and the treadmill in the evening, and he'll go for an hour at a time. And is super in shape, um, and it's it's good for him because it 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 satisfies that addictive tendency in him. I guess he he no longer is a workaholic. Uh, he is at home, and he channels. He now has a wife, and he has kids, and 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 the wife knows. And it, it's it's the thing, but I, I I say all of that to say, and I know he he's not listening. I won't go into into details. He doesn't doesn't live around me, uh, but. He is, he's taking it hard um, and he's going to have to go through some of the repackaged shows and, and he's actually concerned for his own well-being because he knows it's an addiction for him, but it's, it's an addiction as opposed to other things. And I, I, I saw this news this morning and I just flippantly texted him and I mean, he picked up the phone and called and wanted to talk about it. He was, he was really upset about it, uh, but it is, it is a cult following and it, it is interesting uh, how people are having to rechannel tendencies. I got to tell you, I, I did say, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and he said, man, if I got to play one more board game, just, just, just one more board game, it's going to send me over the edge. <laughs> and I, I was being somewhat flippant about it actually, because uh, my son and I, we played a two day risk game over the weekend. I love risk. Um, and these games can stretch out and I'm trying to teach him and he's a master chess player and I can't play chess with him anymore because he beats me constantly, but we're, we're, we're at parity with, with risk. And so much of risk is, is how you draw your countries. But 
I, I'm seeing people online. They're like, I, I gotta, I gotta get out. I gotta be by myself for a minute. Um, and I just need a break. And I'm thinking I've been going for long walks. I get this. How do you channel yourself out there? How, how do you, how do you reprioritize when we're all stuck at home? I, I, I don't know. Uh, there is maybe hope for some Georgians, perhaps Brett Harrell in the state legislature authored house bill 879. It would allow beer and wine deliveries from retailers to residents. It passed the Georgia house on March 12th. Uh, but of course it can't get signed into law. It's got to pass the Senate to be signed by the governor. And, uh, <laughs> Brett Harrell is using the quarantine effort, uh, the quarantine, the shelter place. He's from Snellville, uh, trying to, to show his members of the state legislature that this is kind of necessary. We need home alcohol delivery. <laughs> now, of course, uh, the, the, the Baptists are the, the, the Baptists are, are not a big, big happy about it. Uh, the, the mayor of Atlanta is allowing restaurants in Atlanta to offer mixed to go drinks right now, unless the state intervenes to shut it down and the state is not intervening to shut it down. Uh, but regular companies like, for example, um, regular companies in Georgia, they can't do home delivery like Instacart will deliver your groceries, but they can't deliver beer and wine sales to you because of all the prohibitions. So nonetheless, um, he wants to do it in Georgia. I don't think it's a bad thing. You might as well, if you're getting your groceries and you have your six pack or your case of beer in, in the grocery cart order and Instacart can deliver everything except that, I, I don't see that it's a big deal. And I, I was telling a friend last night, I'm beginning to believe that the, uh, the, the legalized marijuana people are responsible for the shelter in place order because after a few more games of Monopoly, there are going to be a whole lot of people who decide they got to do something other than kill their liver. Uh, to survive the to to survive the shut in. Uh, by the way, that reminds me. Uh, speaking speaking of companies doing things, uh, Buckhead Meats is a company in Atlanta, and you probably know Buckhead Meats because in not just the Metro Atlanta area, they they reach down into Middle Georgia and North Georgia as well. They provide a lot of the meat for a lot of the high end restaurants in the state. Uh, outside of the Savannah area, you go down towards Macon, and you go up to Dalton. Uh, and out towards Athens and over towards Carrollton, if you've got a high-end restaurant, the odds are they're getting their meat from Buckhead Meats. It does not sell to consumers. Uh, uh, give you some of the, the the Metro Atlanta restaurants I know that use them. If you know who Ford Fry is, I actually wrote a check to um, Ford Fry's company's nonprofit. They're trying to keep their payroll going. And I want to make sure these restaurants are there when I get when we can go back. Superica, Beetle Cat, Marcel, The Optimist, um, JCT Kitchen. Those are all four fry restaurants in Atlanta. So I I, I sent some money uh, just to be able to make sure they can keep their payroll going and, and everything else. And, and just because I want them there when I go back. Uh, but also you've got Ruth Chris's, you've got Morton's, you've got Fleming's. All of these steakhouses and stuff, they, they do chicken, they do beef, they do fish, they do shrimp, uh, ground beef, and they do not sell to consumers. Well, they do now. Uh, their offices are actually down by the airport in College Park. They got a great big facility. I was was offered a, I, I, well, we were negotiating, we were talking about doing a pilot video project for a cooking show. I've always wanted to do a cooking show. I love to cook and would love to do a cooking show 
where you bring in people who you may not agree with politically and you have a conversation about non-political things so people can see that the person at a time we every all partisans tend to dehumanize the other side uh, show that you can have a meaningful connecting conversation about life with the person on the other side that does not involve politics. You steer it away from politics and you cook together. Uh, I, I'm a big pro. This is why I like to send out recipes. I'm a big believer that the more people break bread together, the more they're able to build strong community together. And so we should all of us in ways big and small be breaking bread together when we can outside of quarantine. So I wanted to do this cooking show and Buckhead Meats has this huge facility down south of the airport and they've built kind of a studio setup in it so people can come in and do demos of the different recipes, but also you can do uh, with, with filming so big in Atlanta now you can do that. So Buckhead Meats was the place we were going to go. I've always wanted to go down there. It's got a fantastic reputation. It got bought by the Cisco Corporation back in the 90s, but it's kind of run its own thing uh, in the southeast providing all these restaurants. Well, because so many restaurant orders are down, they've decided to open up to the public right now. So you can drive to Buckhead Meat and you can stock up on, on high-quality beef and chicken and seafood and pork and duck even. They, they've got duck, head-on duck. Uh, the head-on duck is $5 each, which is crazy to me. Uh, you can buy a 10-pound box of strip steaks or pork chops for $35 and 10-pound packages of stew meat, uh, beef for $20 and pork for $10. That's just crazy. Uh, you can also get a premium steak kit with four certified Angus beef choice fillets, two prime strips, and two prime ribeyes for $125. That's a phenomenal deal. And... I've been wanting to go do it, and now they're open to the public. So if you if you want to drive to College Park and get yourself high-end restaurant-style meat, you can go do it. And this is a – I bring up the story. I, I have spent way too long on it. I, I'm a terrible host this morning. But the reason that I spin, spin this and, and talk about this is the amount of innovation that's happening in restaurants around the country right now, not just restaurants, but the suppliers to restaurants is actually pretty profound. For example, there are a number of companies out there. I mentioned the supply chain and the lack of toilet paper in your grocery stores. There are companies out there and divisions of companies like Kimberly Clark and George Pacific and, and James River that have industrial manufacturing capabilities that specialize on industry and restaurants. So for toilet paper, for restaurants and stuff, they have particular brands that they sell to restaurants. Well, now they are pivoting in addition to trying to help hospitals and stuff. Some of them are pivoting their supply chains to get back into the consumer market in ways they haven't been to be able to replace the supply chain which is a good thing for all of us. We all benefit uh, by them doing this. But then you've got companies like this one, Buckhead Meat, that never has been open to the public. Uh, in fact, its entire business model is designed around not being open to the public, the exclusivity of restaurateurs. And now they're shaking it up to be able to do that. We're seeing that. And this goes back to the whole alcohol delivery program as well. The uh, demands within quarantine are making people's beliefs be questioned. The, the ideas that people had in place before they were supposed to shelter in place are different. In fact, I got to tell you, I, I've seen more and more stories out there about gun sales among people who are not Second Amendment advocates, the people who never thought they would need it and now suddenly realize, you know, I may be responsible for protecting my family. We are sheltering in place 
in a part of the country that is not the safest. We can't get out of our houses, particularly in California. And so suddenly there are a lot of people who have never been Second Amendment advocates who suddenly are Second Amendment advocates because they realize they're kind of on their own for protection. They got to do it. I don't know that life will ever be the same after we make it through this. Dr. Fauci talked about that at the White House yesterday, that we may get to a point where we come out of this and most of life goes back to normal, but he can't guarantee that everything will be normal again. We're seeing discombobulation in our politics and in our society and in the way businesses operate. We're seeing weaknesses we didn't know existed. We're seeing strengths we didn't know exist. The world is kind of upended right now, and it's it's actually remarkable to see people willing to question some of their core assumptions, not necessarily their beliefs. You're not going to see a lot of conservatives suddenly become liberal or a lot of liberals become conservative or a lot of atheists become Christian or Christians become atheists, but there are some underlying presuppositions in how we view the world, and a lot of people are starting to question those things, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is Eric Erickson here. You know, I'm happy to take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's talk about the USS Roosevelt for a moment uh, because people are really split on this. And the Navy secretary did himself no favors uh, by calling uh, Captain Crozier uh, stupid and difficult. If, if you don't, if you haven't followed the story, the... USS Roosevelt made a stop in, I believe it was Vietnam, and several of the sailors brought back COVID-19. It has been spreading through the ship, and the captain sent out a distressed email and essentially copied it to everybody he knew in the Navy. And the Navy, as a result, fired him. They got egg on their face. They didn't like the embarrassment, and and they booted him off the ship, and he left the ship to the applause of the sailors who believed he had their back. And the naval secretary went over uh, to the ship and essentially said the captain was 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 whiny and difficult and stupid for doing what he did. And it is blowing back on the navy. They've they've handled this terribly, and people are really really uh, split on this. My brother-in-law retired master chief and he and a group of master chiefs uh, largely take the position the navy had to get rid of the captain because the captain did make them look weak and of course we're, we're in a time of uh rah-rah everybody and so there are a lot of people who are taking the captain side the captain by the way has COVID 19 now uh, he is in isolation and he has been fired and uh, you know i think the navy probably needed to handle this differently, but I don't necessarily disagree with them. There is a chain of command that the captains of aircraft carriers should follow. And the Navy's point is that not only did the captain not follow his chain of command, he also didn't follow the chain of command in such a way as to expose the Navy to criticism, bad press, and make it look weak at a time that China is eyeing us and they needed to take action. And so they did, but the Naval secretary made it all worse. He, he, he made it all worse. And you got a, you've got a crew that has a virus spreading through the crew. A number of them now are infected. Uh, I think about a thousand sailors are having to go into isolation because of it. Uh, and the whole situation's gotten out of hand now. 
and there really aren't a lot of heroes in the situation. And the, the crew, of course, looks at the captain as a hero. The captain saved them. Uh, the captain, by raising the alarm the way he did, got immediate attention to the problem when it could have taken time and the virus could have spread further. But concurrent to that, you've also got a situation where the um, the Navy does have a chain of command and he didn't follow the chain of command and he should have followed the chain of command. And by not following the chain of command, he caused problems for the Navy. And the role of a captain is not just to safeguard and steer the ship and make sure the ship is fine, but also to serve the Navy, which he didn't do by doing what he did, even though he thought he was. So I'm kind of torn on this one, but I I tend to side with the fact that, yeah, he probably needed to be removed based on how he handled the situation. Uh, We are learning a lot about people and how they respond in crises. And uh, when you are in a situation like that and decide to essentially copy your Rolodex into your email and, and blast away, probably not a good sign of how you would perform in crisis because it is a crisis. And, and you didn't handle it the way the chain of command taught you to handle it. So that's my two cents on the matter. Now, I want to move on because we do need to talk about the modeling. I, I do have this on the list. I want to talk about the modeling. I want to talk about the White House press conference yesterday. I want to talk about the president and Joe Biden's phone call. They actually spoke on the phone. The president said it was a cordial conversation. And now Biden's advisors are coming out and blasting the president having engaged in this conversation. We will discuss that, but the modeling, the modeling, is it wrong? Was it wrong from the beginning? What does it show us? Why are people skeptical and not skeptical? Let's discuss that when we come back. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The third hour, I promise, we're, we're going to get back onto all the stuff. I, I, I had all the stuff I was going to talk about and then went down rabbit holes today. Uh, it's one of those days What you needed the break from all the virus stuff. Well, we do need to talk about the virus stuff. The phone number, if you want to call in and chat, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The president had a conversation with Joe Biden. Yeah, Mr. President, uh, Vice President Biden's uh, spokesperson said that he made some suggestions uh, to you about actions that you could be taking to deal with the pandemic. We had a very good talk. We, we agreed that we weren't going to talk about what we said, but we had a very, very good talk. It was a warm talk. Uh, I enjoyed it. I hope he enjoyed it, too. And it was short. It was 15 minutes. Uh, Did he have good suggestions? Anything that you're going to do? Well, he had suggestions. It doesn't mean that I agree with those suggestions, but certainly he had suggestions. And uh, I also told him some of the things we're doing, but the conversation was a, a friendly, very friendly conversation. It was a friendly conversation. The Biden campaign has now come out since then and and blasted the president, um, saying that the president looked cl- or sounded clownish on the call. Seriously, y'all, I, I played the clip of Joe Biden yesterday talking about the virus, and I don't understand any of the things the virus was saying. I, I just, I, I can't. It's just... It's bizarre. Um, By the way, you should know Stephanie Grisham is out as White House press secretary. Uh, She never really did a lot in the job. She's going back to serve the first lady where she worked before. Mark Meadows wanted to make some changes. We'll see where that goes. Uh, Let me play you some of the clips from the White House press brief yesterday because there there was some news out of it. The media continues to bellyache over the president in these press conferences. I, I, I think they make a mistake in doing that. And there are a couple other things we need to talk about here, just raw partisanship. But here's Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks. Dr. Fauci and I both strongly believe that if we work as hard as we can over the next several weeks, that we will see potential to go under the numbers that were predicted by the models. And I think that 
is really two things. It is the extraordinary compliance of the American people and the diligence that they have um, mitigated with. Because remember, we are doing this strictly by behavior change. It's very hard to change trajectory of viruses on just behavior change. We have had difficulty in our past doing that. Um, so that's what we're doing and that's what the American people are doing. But the other side of that is the incredible insights that Washington State and others are providing on how to better care for the patients in the hospital. And so those two pieces are coming together that could have a dramatic impact on the predictions of the mortality from this disease. So I'm glad you asked that question because I, I've said it a couple of times here. I want to say it again. Repetition is good. <laughs> is that models are good. They, they, they help us to make projections. But as you get data in, you modify your model. And I've always said data always trumps models, always. So what I feel, and I believe that Dr. Burks also feels, that I don't think anyone has ever mitigated the way I'm seeing people mitigate right now. This has never happened in this country before. So I am optimistic, always cautiously optimistic, that if we do what I've been talking about over the past few minutes, we can make that number go down. I, I don't accept every day that we're going to have to have 100 to 200,000 deaths. I think we can really bring that down, no matter what a model says, because when the data comes in, it'll start to saying, you know, Maybe you are essentially overshooting the model. And I think that's where we can go. That's the reason why I like to always get up and tell the American people, it's the virus doing what the virus wants to do, and it's we as a society doing what we can do. Great advice there. One more from Dr. Fauci. It related to the, something I said yesterday about uh, that somewhat paradox of everything going up at the same time that the feeding into this engine of this virus is starting to show some signs. So Governor Cuomo today reported an interesting uh, data from New York, namely that the number of hospitalizations, the number of admissions to intensive care, and the number of requirements for intubations over the last three days have actually started to level off. So again, everybody who knows me knows I'm very conservative about making projections, but those are the kind of good signs that you look for, you never even begin to think about claiming victory prematurely, but that's the first thing you see when you start to see the turnaround. That doesn't mean we don't have a lot of work to do. That tells me, instead of saying, hmm, that's pretty good, it's we got there through mitigation. We cut off the stream of people who ultimately required hospitalization, required intubation, required all of the kinds of extreme methods. You know. One of the things that, that continues to happen right now is the ongoing effort by some on the right to claim the models are wrong and have always been wrong. And, and I've got to tell you, there are a lot of bad models out there, and I understand people being skeptical of the models, particularly because of uh, so many years of global warming extremism, uh, touting models that show the end of the world that never comes. But epidemiological models have been around for about 100 years, uh, and they have been widely used, and they're never precise, and they're never accurate. Uh, but they are always good – Good, um, they're good projections. And with this virus, it takes about two weeks, and they can tend to, uh, they can tend to model out. We know the rate of infection 
uh, from one person to another. We know how long it takes for symptoms to be presented. The thing the models can't get now, and, and this is what got the, the governor tripped up at his press conference, he knew that asymptomatic people can spread the virus. He's getting attacked for saying he didn't know what he actually meant was that uh, he knew that asymptomatic people spread the virus. What is new is that we now know there are asymptomatic people who will never, ever get the symptoms and in never, ever getting the symptoms uh, can still get people infected. What we had known is there can be people with no symptoms who can get people infected, but those people with no symptoms eventually get symptoms. What we now know is there will be people who are carriers like typhoid Marys who themselves don't get typhoid, but give it to other people. This is essentially the way this virus operates now, which is why to some degree there is um, there are some major modeling errors out there. We also know that the models have shifted dramatically since last week in large part because of shelter in place. Now, there is, a, there is a, a rumor out there among people that the models always contemplated total shelter in place. That's not true. That is fundamentally not true, and please don't believe anyone who's saying that. The reason the models have shifted so dramatically from last week is that they have, in fact, now added in shelter in place. There are now 42 states, I think it is, that are shelter in place. There is one state like North Dakota that isn't really doing much, or South Dakota, rather, isn't doing much of anything. It's got people so spread out, it hardly has any cases of the virus. But then there are states like California where it's it's not only shelter in place, but uh, they're going to haul you off to jail if they see you outside, unless you're going to the grocery store. There are states like Georgia that have shelter in place where there's cell phone data, people being tracked by cell phone. Uh, and it suggests that only about 15% of people have changed their behavior. But also, if you dig into it, what you see is that most people already had changed their behavior. There actually are a lot of people who are staying home now who had not otherwise stayed home. And that matters dramatically. It matters significantly that that's going on. Um, the, the, the end result of all of this, by the way, is that the modeling gives us a picture of where things are heading. It is not intended to be precise. It is intended to be fairly accurate. And the data flows in on a daily basis to change the model. So, for example, and I did look this up, uh, yesterday the modeling showed a shift in Georgia from April 23rd to about April 14th as as our over-the-hump day. Uh, It then showed a shift to April 20th as new data came in and then shifted back to the 14th and has shifted again to the 20th. It, It had several shifts in the day. And the reason it had several shifts in the day was because of as the data came in, the model updated. Uh, the modeling right now shows that instead of the 23rd, 24th with shelter in place in Georgia, uh, April 20th should be the day we start to plateau and, and, and go on the downslope in terms of death, in terms of hospitalization in the state, if everyone continues to do what they're doing. And if everyone continues to do what they're doing in Georgia, by the end of this month, there will be parts of the state that we can open up. We will have enough testing capacity that people will be able to be rapidly tested and they are deploying antibody tests to to speed it up even more. You, you know, for example, uh, your kid gets strep throat or you get strep throat, you go to the doctor. They can, while you are sitting there, test you for strep throat. And if you get it, they give you antibiotics and you go home. 
And sometimes there's a false positive. Sometimes there, there's a false negative. But typically, the testing is over 80% accurate. We rely on it. Uh, they can uh, take blood sample, and they can see that you have an elevated white blood cell count that tells you you're infected. They don't know what it is, but they can do that. And then they can also give you a flu test. They can give you a flu test while you sit there. And the flu test can uh, determine whether you're got the flu or not. And again, you can get false positives, you can get false negatives, but the test is generally widely considered accurate. They're developing that for COVID-19 where you will be able to take the test and within a few minutes, they'll be able to tell you whether you're infected or not. And once that testing capacity ramps up and, and that test deploys, you'll be able to go back to work. You may have to wear a face mask for a few weeks as the virus continues to be out there, but you'll be able to go back to work and if you don't feel well, you'll be able to get a test and it'll tell you whether or not you're positive or negative. And there will be a lot of employers who give their employees the test and they will be required to send you home and keep you home for 14 days in quarantine if you test positive. But the world will change and mostly will go back to normal. But I, I don't think it's helpful for people to be out, particularly the president's supporters. They should not be out there trying to say the modeling is all wrong. Uh, yeah, I, I think the better tactic is this. Don't try to undermine the modeling that the president himself is using because all you're doing is saying that the president's an idiot. There are a lot of people who support the president who want you to know that the modeling is a grand conspiracy by the deep state and Dr. Fauci is collaborative with the deep state to try to undermine the president. And that is a bizarre conspiracy theory. And I know and am friends with people who emphatically believe it. And it's crazy talk. But. Here's the better approach, that the modeling is right, and it has dramatically shifted from hundreds of thousands dead to tens of thousands dead because the president has shown extraordinary leadership. And because the president has shown extraordinary leadership, uh, we are turning the corner. When you say the modeling is wrong and it's all a grand conspiracy, all you're doing is showing that the president can be played and taken advantage of because the president at the end of the day is making the decisions, not Dr. Fauci. And so if the president is making decisions because the modeling is all wrong, uh, I thought the president was smart enough to be able to figure these things out. And clearly he's not, he's getting played. So why is he still president? The better approach is to say, you know, the modeling is right. And the president is doing such a remarkable job of leadership right now that we've turned the corner sooner than the models originally projected because of the president's great leadership. Because of the president's great leadership, we're able to go back to work sooner than people expected. Because of the president's great leadership, we're able to, to go on with our lives in a more normal way. Because of the president's leadership, testing has ramped up, and we're going to have the capacity to send people back to work. That seems to me to be the tactic that you should take. In fact, it's the tactic the president's campaign team is going to take. I mean, instead of trying to undermine the credibility of the models, the president's team intends to embrace the legitimacy of the models and go out with a campaign message of, look how bad the models said things were going to be. And now they're not going to be that bad. And that's to the president's credit. And good on them for doing that. I, I think it's worthwhile for the president's team to take that tactic. I think it's worthwhile for the president's supporters to take that tactic. The, the, this ongoing conspiracy theory idea that the modeling has always been wrong and the reason it's wildly adjusting has nothing to do with 10 new states imposing shelter in place last week, but because they're trying to do damage control on the modeling. I, no, that's not actually the way it works. 
It's actually to the credit of the models that they have publicly adjusted, as opposed to the global warming models, which won't even send us the methodology that they got that hockey stick with. Embrace the models, because if you embrace the models, you suddenly have a remarkable case that the president has been a strong and highly effective leader in a time of crisis. Might as well go with that one. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Have you all heard about this story down in Valdosta? Uh, the the football coach in Valdosta, the, there, was a board, there was an election for the school board in Valdosta, and it shifted the racial composition of the school board in Valdosta from majority white to majority black. The football coach at the high school there is white and has a very good record, is thought of very highly in the community, uh, and the school board has regularly rehired him. The school board has changed now in its racial composition to be majority black, and several of the members of the school board, it's my understanding from talking to people down there, had said on the campaign trail that it was time to have a football coach as a leader in the community, more representative of the community. And after getting into office and renewing all the contracts for all the school employees, the one school contract in Valdosta that did not get renewed was that of a of the highly successful with a winning record football coach at the high school. Um, and it was a, a racial, it, it fell along racial lines. Uh, the black members of the school board voted against him. The white members voted for him. And again, there had been lots of grumblings on the campaign trail that they needed a, a black football coach down there. Uh, and it was explicitly made racial by certain of the members of that school board. Well, uh, the coach's wife has filed a lawsuit. And the lawsuit essentially says that because it involved the the refusal to renew his contract when everyone else got their contract renewed uh, was, she believes, racially motivated that it has disrupted her life and the lives of her children as they will now uh, have to move school systems uh, so that her husband can find a new job. It leaves a stigma on him and the family and, and, and their earnings capabilities and everything else. It was a very interesting lawsuit. I, I read it. I meant to talk about this the, uh, last week when the story broke. Well, so now they, they're filing, the, they file the lawsuit, and the way a lawsuit works is you file a lawsuit, and you have to go serve it to the people you're suing. And, and she's suing not just the school system, but the individual school board members who refused to renew her husband's contract, and again, some of whom on the campaign trail were making it a racial issue. And three of those members, I believe that there are five of them, and three of them are doing everything they can to refuse service. Two of them, according to an updated filing, uh, two of them have signs on their front doors saying anyone who knocks on the front door due to the spread of the virus, anyone who knocks on the front door will be shot. The They had hired a service processor to uh, serve the lawsuits. Uh, when you get sued... The sheriff or someone you designate serves the lawsuit and then certifies that they gave it to you or someone who was in your custody or control. So, for example, um, you show up at someone's house, you got to give it to that person. Uh, you show up at a business, you give it to one of the designated employees who can accept it. And the process server can't serve the lawsuit on the people because the uh, there's a sign on the door saying if you knock, you're going to get shot. 
So now they're going to have to use the sheriff's office, of course, to serve this. I believe my understanding, don't hold me to this one, but my understanding is one of the people has left the area to avoid being served, uh, which, I mean, a, a, again, all of this will come to play. The, the campaign trail statements, the behavior. Now, they refused, by the way, you should know, I, I did read in the paper down there, that they refused any comment or explanation when they were going through this, the, the board members. So if you read the record from the the Board of Education down in Lowndes County in Valdosta, the city of Valdosta schools, you will not find any mention of race or any motivation whatsoever. They simply did not extend a contract renewal to the football coach, and they refused to explain it. They refused to offer any reason why. But if you were to get on the campaign trail and go through campaign materials and statements prior to the election, uh, you would find that several of the people who did this apparently were making it a racial issue that they did not want to continue having a white football coach. Now, I would want a winning football coach. It, it wouldn't matter to me race, but apparently it was a big deal to some of these members down there. And again, this is a football coach with a very winning record, and it has become quite the scandal in Valdosta, uh, particularly the behavior of these school board members uh, acting as they are now acting uh, in the school system. And I suspect you may find a, a get a bigger investigation down there besides this lawsuit. And by the way, it appears there's broad uh, biracial support for this football coach. Uh, he, he's highly popular in the black community and among his black players and also in the white community. But it is these school board members down there who have decided uh, that he needs to go despite his winning track record and his popularity among players in the community. Just a bizarre situation in the 21st century. We have to deal with stuff like this. Uh, really, really bizarre. Um, and just come on, people. It's the 21st century. Grow up. I want to play you uh, some some opposing audio here. This is Governor Andrew Cuomo yesterday. There has been anecdotal evidence that it is promising. That's why we're going ahead. Uh, doctors have to prescribe, but there are some people who have pre-existing conditions where it doesn't work or they're taking medication that's not consistent with this treatment. But anecdotally, it's been positive. That's Andrew Cuomo talking about hydroxychloroquine, uh, that, that medicine that the president has encouraged people to take. The president said he might take it if he were to get the virus. Here's uh, Karen Jean-Pierre on MSNBC. It is so off, Nicole. I mean, this drug that he's talking about is going to kill people if this is what they do. If they just don't, if they are not listening to the expert, but listening to the president of the United States who's saying, oh, this drug, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. How dangerous is that coming from the president behind the podium? in the White House saying these things, he's going to get people killed. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can just listen to AMA. They are saying the same thing. And so you have a president that goes by his political gut, who doesn't listen to the experts. And what does that get us? Once again, it gets us into a place of no return. We're going only deeper into this crisis. We are not yet, not yet flattening this curve. And the president, once again, cannot do his duty, cannot be the commander in chief, cannot lead us out of this because he is all about the politics. He's all about his own personal reelect. Mm -hmm. There was a White House of... You know, I, I'm I'm I just can't play any more of this woman. Um, Y'all, the governor of New York shows anecdotal benefit 
By the way, you know, the, the, the left is now peddling a conspiracy theory that the reason the president is pushing hydroxychloroquine is because friends of his would stand to make lots of money. Do you know that per tablet, hydroxychloroquine is actually super cheap, less than 10 cents a pill? I've got a friend of mine whose wife has lupus and she's on hydroxychloroquine uh, and it's such a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous medicine that she took it while she was pregnant. (gasps) The left has gone nuts over this. Uh, Just crazy talk over the medicine. It's crazy talk over the fear. It's, It's crazy talk over... The, the president daring to say that we're okay, daring to say the medicine's okay, daring to say you can take the medicine and is erythromycin and, and that there have been studies that have shown it's okay. And the president said, I'm not a doctor, but I keep reading about these studies. And Dr. Fauci has said that we can't for sure be sure that the medicine works, but there are a lot of anecdotes. We need some controlled studies. He's not prepared to say, uh, take it, but he's not going to say, don't take it. In fact, doctors are prescribing it. And there are numerous people coming forward saying, yes, it rapidly improved my symptoms. And it does appear that from the moment you first develop symptoms, the quicker you take it, the better it works. But it's still all anecdote. We haven't really tested this so far. But why is it the governor of New York getting lit on fire by the media for saying anecdotally, yeah, it does appear to be working? Because every time the president mentions it, the press has an absolute meltdown over it. A little more audio, some of which I I, I couldn't get to yesterday. But here's Dr. Fauci one more time. Very quickly, uh, is hydrochloroquine preventative against this virus? Yes or no? You know, as I've said many times, Margaret, the the data are really just at best suggestive. There have been cases that show there may be an effect and there are others to show there's no effect. Okay. So I think in terms of science, I don't think we could definitively say it works. There you go. We can't say definitively, but there are cases that appear we may be, it, it, it may work. And yet, because the president brings it up, people are going insane about it. But Democrats bring it up, and the media gives them a pass. A, a black elected official in Michigan is crediting the president pushing hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Uh, she got COVID-19. Her doctor gave it to her. Her symptoms rapidly improved, and she's crediting the president with it. And again, it's anecdote. Anecdote is not data. You know what anecdote is, is individuals say something that they heard so-and-so or this happened to them, and they accept it as fact. It's like my, my, my friends who embrace essential oils. Anecdotally, there is data out there that suggests in a lot of cases essential oils can help in, in various ways. Now, there are also a lot of crazy people out there who believe in essential oils cure everything. Uh, but there is anecdotal data out there that in a lot of cases, uh, a lot of people can benefit from essential oils. But there is not major scientific data out there showing that to be the case. Anecdote is not data. You have to account for a placebo effect, among other things. A lot of the research that is circulated by people out there is stuff done by the companies that are actually profiting off the sale. So you need some independent studies. And and as Dr. Fauci is pointing out, there haven't been independent scientific studies on hydroxychloroquine, but there are beginning to be lots of anecdotes out there that it's working, which is why he and others are, are standing aside and letting doctors prescribe it to see if it works. It's not a bad idea. And yet the media continues to melt down over all of it. The, the president speaks, they go into meltdown mode over all of these things. 
Here, by the way, a little more of the president from his press conference. I can also announce today that we have reached an agreement, very amicable agreement with 3M for the delivery of an additional 55.5 million high-quality face masks, face masks each month so that we're going to be getting over the next couple of months 166.5 million masks for our frontline healthcare workers. So the 3M saga ends very happily. Uh, we're very proud to be dealing now with 3M and its CEO, Mike Roman. I just spoke with him and I thanked him for getting it done. And uh, Mike was very happy to get it done. It's a great company. So we're getting 166.5 million masks. And mostly that's going to be for our frontline healthcare workers. Okay, that's 3M. Thank you, 3M. Good for 3M. You know, for all of the attacks on the private industry by the left in this country, including Democratic candidates on the campaign trail saying billionaires should not exist, uh, it is the the private sector in this company in this country that's going to save us. It is the billionaires like Bill Gates using their own resources to get factories up and running, pouring their money into finding a vaccine, finding a cure, finding something to improve the condition. It's not the government doing it. I mean, what we're seeing is governments bungling it, and, and this I think is left out of the conversation. By so many people, the the left is so intent on blaming the president for everything. What they can't acknowledge is that every global power is having similar problems. And, you know, people on the right uh, to amplify their conspiracy theories against the models and we should reopen the country and the models are all wrong. They've been pointing to Sweden. The Swedes decided to leave everything open and go with herd immunity, which Great Britain did as well. By the way, uh, Boris Johnson, the British prime minister in ICU now with the virus, he's had it for two weeks, can't shake it. He's in ICU. Uh, number 10 Downing Street just released a statement that he is uh, awake. He is talking. He is not on a ventilator, but he is still in ICU. They decided to go the herd mentality route as well. So or herd herd mentality, <laughs> uh, herd immunity. The Netherlands too did both rapidly changed their mind. Sweden did not. And there were a lot of stories coming out of Sweden that uh, the Swedes are going to gonna get by on this. The Swedes are going to do okay. The Swedes are doing better than everybody else in Europe. Do you know per capita now that the, you're not seeing this in a lot of conservative press that's been pushing the Swedish model? Since the weekend, the Swedes have turned the corner and are now leading Scandinavia per capita in deaths from the virus. Actually, not 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 traceback deaths, uh, not not deaths of people who died of other things but had the virus, but actual actual directly affected people who have the virus. Sweden is now per capita seeing more people die of the virus than other Scandinavian countries. In fact, as Denmark and Austria and a few other European countries are starting to relax their shelter-in-place requirements, Sweden is now ramping up their shelter-in-place requirements, and it may bring down the Swedish government as a result uh, that, that, that they waited so long to do this. Uh, they have now had to restrict gatherings from no gatherings of more than 500 to now no ga more gatherings of 50. They're having to now restrict uh, bars and nightclubs in Sweden. They're having to do all the things that we're doing here in this country. And you still have a lot of people who are peddling old news that, oh, the Swedish model is great. And look, we can go back to work and all that. It's not true. Turns out the Swedes tried it. And now they're having to get rid of it. They're they're having to go to to they haven't gone completely to shelter in place yet. They're still moving slow. 
And there's a growing cry from experts in Sweden that they need to step it up. It always fascinates me that the, you know, listen, I'm in the camp that the people who want to go back to work don't want everybody to die. And the people who want everyone to stay home don't want every business to go bankrupt. And yet we're we're in this country where you're we're so tribal now. It's either or. You either want everyone to go back to work or you want everyone to die. Or uh it just it it's or you want every cut business to go bankrupt, pick your camp, as opposed to we're trying to muddle through this together. But above all, I think there's there's this underlying issue that everyone wants to take their preconceived partisan notions and apply it to this. I put up a Twitter thread earlier where I said that the thing that gets me about this is that everyone is using this virus to confirm their priors. If you hated the president to begin with, uh, the president has done everything bad, everything wrong, and you can't credit him for anything right. If you love the president, you can't say he's done anything wrong. You can't say he's overstepped. You can't say he's done anything bad as opposed to the president's done a lot of things good and right, and he's done a lot of things bad and wrong. And so George Conway, Kellyanne Conway's husband, who I know, I I, I like George, uh, but he has stepped up and he says, well, when a a pilot takes off flawlessly and then crashes the plane into a mountain, you don't focus on the takeoff. I'm like, George, you're proving my point here. You're proving my point that every country on planet Earth has dealt with this in largely the same way. Every country on planet Earth is dealing with major problems related to this virus. They are dealing with fallout. They are dealing with shelter in place. They, they have all responded accordingly. They're all getting very similar results. Uh, there, there are all sorts of good and bad around the world. We've got the prime minister of Great Britain now in ICU because they did not go shelter in place the way so many did. And yet people in this country, partisans in this country are content on bashing the president or bashing the Democrats as opposed to saying, hey, what did I think was true that turns out not to be true? I started this with deep skepticism of all the modeling because I'm used to the global warming models all being wrong and never being adjusted to reality. And yet as we've gone through this process, I have seen and educated myself on the modeling and not not the conspiracy theories that you've read on conservative websites like uh, the models always contemplated shelter in place and social distance. Well, they did always contemplate social distancing, but not shelter in place. That's why they've changed so dramatically in the past week. But the number of people who are twisting truth, and, and by the way, we're in Holy Week where, where we will celebrate the ultimate truth on Sunday. In fact, on Friday, I will stop talking about politics altogether and, and spend an entire show on Good Friday. We'll be talking about ultimate truth, and there are so many people who want to twist the truth to con- to conform reality to their priors as opposed to looking at everything they thought was true and seeing what now is and is not true. You know, the one thing that holds true for me, the, the one thing that I am unwavering on is that the private sector in this country will save us and will do so better than the government. That is the thing that I stand on that we are seeing. It is the private sector. It is the wealthy coming forward and helping. It is the charity of individuals towards others. It is the amount of people who are stepping up to still support the the businesses that they've worked with beforehand. You know, we, we have housekeepers who come to our house once a week. We've paid them for three weeks and they can't come to our house. We want to make sure they're there when we get out of this. I sent my barber 500 bucks because I want my barber to be there 
when I come out. I'm still paying my gym membership and my gym is closed. And this isn't to pat myself on the back because every single last one of you who can is doing the exact same thing. It is the individuals of this country who are standing up and doing the right thing. It is the companies of this country who are standing up and doing the right thing. The, the media likes to highlight the idiots who aren't. Uh, the virus will call the herd of idiots. The rest of us will stay home. We will keep this country open. We will go back to work. We will go back to our businesses. We will rebuild after this is over. For the next couple of weeks, we'll sit on our couch. We'll get tired of playing board games. We'll get tired of surfing the internet. We'll get tired of the slow internet. We'll go for a walk. We'll get out of the house. And, and the pundits in Washington will continue to blame each other. The left will continue to blame the president. The president and, and the right will continue to blame the Democrats for not appreciating him enough or lying the rest of his life's going to go on. There's another prior of mine that I double down on. And that is that we have gotten too political as a society. And that there's got to be a better balance in our life between politics and the rest of the world. The world is going on. Not everything is political. And not everything should be political. And yet so many people who live their entire existence online want to make it all political. It's not all political. You know the latest political outrage of the day? Sourdough. I'll explain. Y'all, I have been home making my sourdough starter. I made my first sourdough bread on Sunday, and it was actually very tasty. Still have some of it, actually. I also made a sourdough focaccia that I turned into a sheet pan pizza, and it did not turn out as good. I didn't use olive oil on the bottom. I used Crisco, and it didn't get crispy. It, it got soggy. The more it set out, I got to have a do-over of that. But nonetheless, uh, the bread has turned out great. The sourdough starter has turned out great. And who knew it was a thing? And, and this is part of my pet peeve with the media, by the way. It's very much like the cross story and, and Newsweek burning up the cross story, uh, claiming that I'm burning a cross in my front yard by having a, a uh, cross in my front yard for Easter decorated in Christmas lights. They, they really did accuse me of burning a cross in my front yard. Uh, and, and now a bunch of neighbors have have taken up the cross, so to speak, and they've all got them in their yards with Christmas lights, and I thank them very much. Some of them pre were pre-existing to mine, but a whole lot of them have added since Newsweek accused me of burning a cross in my yard. Uh, everybody found it ridiculous. We've got black neighbors, white neighbors, Hispanic neighbors, Asian neighbors, all of whom are Christian and have these crosses in their yards now. But sourdough has become a thing. People are staying home. They can't leave their house. It's the perfect time to make a sourdough starter. Once you get it going, you only need to feed it once a week. Well, it turns out that some people on the internet, this is the worst trend of the internet. You take a bunch of criticisms from random trolls on Twitter and suddenly it's a news story, just like the whole cross burning thing. I put up that picture and it was random trolls on Twitter saying, oh, he's burning a cross. He's in the KKK and Newsweek did a story on it. Erickson criticized for burning cross in front yard. That was literally the headline. Well, now it's become a thing. Fox News is right. And I, it, it pains me that Fox is picking up this trend of, of random people on the Internet screaming about something becomes a news story. Random people on the Internet are upset because uh, rich white people get to stay home and make their sourdough and they're buying up all the flour. And so the poor people who have to go to work can't find flour and they can't they don't have time to make sourdough. Do you know globally sourdough is what poor people tend to rely on when they make their bread every day in poor countries around the world. I, I was actually listening to a conversation the other day between two guys uh, talking about how people in the United States 
tend to not understand global poverty because we look at the poverty in this country. When you talk about really, really poor people in this country, most people tend to think of one of two places, Indian reservations or Appalachia. Uh, and that those are deep poverty, and that if you travel the world, actually they're extreme, considered extreme wealth by the poor around the world, that even the poorest of the poor in this country are wealthy compared to the poorest of the poor in other countries. And in a lot of other countries, you have family sourdough because you're not going to go buy yeast to do your bread making. You may not put yeast at all in your bread, And if you do, it's going to be a family sourdough, a communal sourdough, uh, where you're making your bread with yeast grown from a sourdough process. And that's the way it's been for about 4,000 years. And yet in this country, some very privileged people who have high-speed internet and can get online to get on Twitter and have an account are complaining about other people daring to make sourdough and, and reconnecting with this. I, I, I've never understood the people who want to impute politics to food of where you get your food. Y'all, I, I couldn't care less. When I go to a restaurant and I order a nice, well-done steak, <laughs> I'm, I'm just making you people aggravated. When I go to a nice restaurant and I get the, the, the slow-roasted chicken, I really don't care that the chicken had a name beforehand. And there are some political activists who are convinced that you should not be able to eat that chicken or that slab of meat unless you know the animal's name first. Because you should have to humanize the animal you're eating and realize you shouldn't be eating animal. This is actually a thing out there, particularly in the in the the the, the West Coast. Uh, there's this old TV show Portlandia about how uh, someone wanted wanted uh, like a, a lamb or something, and, and all the lambs had names, and you had to learn the names. and And it, it's it's based on real life out on the West Coast. Just just crazy people uh, wanting you to know all this stuff. The, the fact of the matter is, I couldn't care less that my cow was named Bob before I ate. Uh, the the fillet or the ribeye. I I really couldn't care less. And you know you are supposed to name your starter your sourdough. I'm thinking of gonna I'm gonna name mine Bob. Uh, but the fact that there are wealthy people on the internet who are upset that other wealthy people are making sourdough, and you actually get back to real bread baking at a time that we're all supposed to be hyper organic and and uh, farm to table. That's another one of the the crazes for rich people out there is farm to table. And so you got crazy rich people who are upset about the farm to table movement when it comes to bread bacon. I personally think it's a good thing because the more we break bread together, I think the better off we are as a society. But five angry people on the Internet complained about it, and now it's become a news story that your sourdough bread baking is a sign of, of privilege and racism because you have the time to stay home and make a sourdough starter. People really are stupid.